Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast, The Way Out is In. I am Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems change. And I am Brother Papu, a Zen Buddhist monk in the tradition of Zen Master Tikihan in the Plum Village community in France. And today, brother, we're going to be looking at one of the core teachings of the Buddha, which are known as the Four Nutriments, which are edible foods, sense impressions, volition, and consciousness. Now. I'm not sure if I know what all this means. I know about edible foods, but um, listen, dear listeners, and hopefully we will, by the end of this, have a clue what's going on. The way out is in. Welcome, dear listeners. I am Joe Confino. And I am Brother Fab Hu. And today, brother, we're talking about what's called the four nutriments, edible foods, sense impressions, volition and consciousness. Now, I am sort of feeling like I I get a couple of these, but I'm going to look, I'm going to lean on you heavily for uh, support on this uh, podcast, because my sort of basic understanding is that we are in a dynamic relationship with life. And often we're not really conscious of that, but actually there are many ways in which we are in relationship. So we eat food, we think, we have judgments, we have ambitions and wishes and dreams. And also we have the sum total of our thoughts and the thoughts of our ancestors, and then the thoughts of of our community and the world. And so all those are actually in dynamic relationship with each other. Is that sort of what we're talking about? In a way, yes. And we will also be talking about how we take care of our well-being in body and mind and also spirit. Right. So what's the best way? Should we should we go through each one? Or do you want to talk about the Buddha's teaching as a sort of overall message? What what, what is he what is he trying to tell us? So when when I was learning um how to how to be more mindful in, in my daily life. As a monk, this is our bread and butter. Every morning we wake up, we start our day. And already when you wake up, you begin your day, you are training to to take care of your mind and take care of your body. So we know that the relationship to our well-being and the world is very interconnected. And how we relate to the world, how we, we relate to everything outside of us is also in our in our capacity we actually have agency for all of this so to practice buddhism and to practice mindfulness is to learn to nourish our body nur- nourish our mind care for our body care for our mind understand our mind more understand our body more in order to in order to be an offering also to the world so we know that in buddhism the Buddha always teaches us that everything needs food to survive. This is, for me, this is one of the, um, I, I would say the second noble truth that the Buddha teaches us that everything has roots. So if we want to look at our well-being, we have to see how we are 
consuming, um, consuming via edible foods, nourishing our body, what we drink, what we eat, um, and then our sense impression. I think this is a very interesting one. I think we can go quite deep into this because in today's world, we're not just consuming through smell and taste and and um, but now what what we what we are able to see through a small screen, um, all of the information throughout the world, the internet is so vast, and we have to be very mindful of how we consume the the media, how we consume the images, the sounds that will influence our perceptions, our judgment, our views, our way of life, and then. How coming back to our own consciousness, are we aware of what we're thinking, what we are producing in the f- in the form of our thoughts in daily life? And all of this is a relationship to us as an individual, but also a relationship to the collective, collective consciousness of our community, our family, our loved ones, our society, even consciousness to our planet. And brother, I mean, it's we are under assault, basically. I mean, what what you're saying is that there's so much coming at us, sort of from a thousand directions. And so, if we are not aware of how we are responding to life, then we lose our agency and we become a victim. And also, you know, it's true that you know when we look at social media and we look at you know the algorithms of number of these platforms they are they are there to take over our mind so actually it's really critical that we actually start to become conscious aware and to actually say see what is our relationship to life where are we relating in a way that is filling us with fear or dread or anxiety and where we're going that is filling us as you see d- developing our well-being yes exactly and i think this is why um, we have to speak about very practical things so that we can have a journey, a practice, so that we can become also aware of our our habits. We have um, personal habits, and then I would even say we have collective habit as a community, as a society. And then we have habits that are passed down through our ancestors to us in relationship to how we consume life. So shall we dive in, brother? Let's shall go. We, shall we start with um, edible food? So that that seems the most obvious thing to people. And and I was I was uh, thinking about this bit today, brother, because I I've got a bit of a sweet tooth, and so I sort of was watching my habit today. So I got up, had a cup of tea with the sugar in it, then had another cup of tea with some sugar in it, and then I had a piece of banana cake. And then I had a um, a macaroon, and then I had a slice of cake. (laughs) (laughs) And that was all before lunch. So, so I, and so I was watching myself do that and realizing that um, with edible foods, you know, it's like each time I had something sweet, it's like I was having a moment of sweetness. Mm. So, 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 so some senses in my mouth were, were excited and enjoying that food. But actually, I was not thinking at all about the fact that that food was going into my stomach, that it would take many hours to process it, that 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 the sugar content was probably changing 
my mood and behavior and that it was probably going to affect at some point my body weight and and so so in a sense what i was doing was i was responding to a sort of a craving for something that i'm habituated to but i have no i never normally think about actually there's a long tail to that behavior so is that sort of a bit of what we're talking about here that is joe you just talked about mindfulness of consumption right there <laughs> and and um we as a practitioner we we learn to have a relationship with food and if you actually reflect on your relationship with food you can see how it is connected to your everyday feelings emotions and even your suffering. Um, a lot of the time when we are lonely or we have nothing to do and we are filled with silence in our life or with emptiness, we have a habit to cover it up. We have a habit to put things into that empty hole, that void. And it's very easy to just consume food because like you said, it gives you this feeling of um, joy, this feeling of happiness, this feeling of also you are doing something to cover up. And now with the lens of mindfulness, with the lens of awareness, we can see that that is a habit that we have inherited from, from our way of living and the consequences of it, it can make our energy lower later in the day. It can make us feel um, actually not better, but even a little bit worse. So there's so many relationships when we talk about food. And for us, the word that comes to my mind and in our meditation is that we need to have moderation. We have to have moderation in order to to take care of our body. So when we speak about, about this element, you know, I think you might think that, oh, Brother Fapu is going to say, oh, I shouldn't be eating at all because that's not, that's not good for you. But actually, we, we, as a practitioner, we do have the right to enjoy life and to enjoy sweets, enjoy that piece of cake. But are we doing it with mindfulness? That's, that's the key right there. It's like, Am I consuming because I actually need it? And I think most of the time we consume when we don't need the food and we're consuming it more in a way of just to cover up a space. And our body pays for all of that. Our desire tells us that, oh, maybe a piece of chocolate would feel good right now. But our body's like, no, I don't need that actually. What I need is more water, for example. <laughs> um, so when we practice mindfulness of body coming back to home to the body we have to become aware of how we are caring for our body and food plays a very big part in that so we know that whatever we consume it becomes our energy yeah and and also brother it's it's about for me there's something about availability mm. so if i open the cupboard and there was no cake and no biscuits or no chocolate i'd actually be fine you know, I might momentarily have that sort of desire, but it's not there and I would get on with my day. But I think one of the problems and, and for a lot of people is that, you know, especially in the West, there's the cupboard is normally, you know, for people who have money, uh, 
there's food in the cupboard and and so you know it's a bit like social media it's all available mm. and so that therefore actually the temptation is always stronger and and i think i think when you know when i was growing up you know it was called a treat mm. because because it was something you had once in a while and now you know almost it's no longer a treat it's just like it's there and i can just grab it when i want but brother i think it'd be good to talk about the sort of broader aspect of food because i you know one thing again when when i was a when i was growing up um i ate meat and i ate fish and i ate all sorts of food and I, and i never once in probably my first 30 years of life ever thought about where the food came from mm. or the conditions of the food or or the condition or its relationship to the planet i you know it just wasn't in my gestalt it wasn't discussed it wasn't thought of it wasn't reported on but for people who are sort of living through these times i mean food has become also a very big political and environmental issue because actually it's not just now how food affects our body it's fact that if we choose to eat a packet of biscuits that often that often um, includes palm oil and palm oil is responsible for destruction of rainforests or if we're eating beef we realize that meat sort of accounts for whatever 17 or 20 percent on average of of global emissions so so actually mindfulness of eating i think in the last 10 years has fundamentally shifted you are correct joe the way we consume through what we eat edible food it has a large impact on the environment situation that we are in right now as a human species so when you start to see that food is not also just a means but it's there's a relationship to it i think you have to shift your your way of looking at food and our practice you know before we we get the food from the, from the dining table in in our monastery so we have a practice already when we are lining up for the food we are practicing moderation we eat just what is enough and this is really crucial this is really important because um this is to help us not take more than what we need from the earth and as hum- as humans i think that we have this habit and and this pride and this kind of like thinking that men is everything and and everything belongs to us but that is not the insight of our ancestor and that's not the insight of mother earth actually we are all interconnected so if we know how to consume more mindfully we will in relation take care of our planet in a more skillful way and what we choose to eat is also very important i think the awareness of um the meat industry um alcohol industry all the impact that that all the farming of the crop in order to just feed the the cows in order to just make um um beverages for for us it costs us more than we think so we have to really take a moment in our day in our weeks and just contemplate how do i consume food what is enough and we we have to um sometimes meditate on on seeing what we eating is sometimes 
we're not just eating the food, but we're eating the future in a way. I know it's a very tough meditation sometimes because if we consume the way we are as humans, there's not going to be much for the future. And if we think in that way, we have that, that, then we can say, this is insight. And if we have that insight and we want to apply that insight, we have to change. And to change is not difficult. It's, it's just in the view, in our understanding. So for us, you know, in the monastery, we, we choose a, a plant-based diet because we know we are also nourishing our compassion when we eat um, these, these kind of meals. And it has not just um, spiritually supporting us and then mentally and then compassion, but we also are nourishing our body because we know that our, our body is easier in digesting um, plant-based food. So this is a personal choice, I know, for everyone, but we know that it has a very direct relationship um, to, to Mother Earth and caring for the environment. And our teacher has encouraged many of our friends who come to Plum Village after the retreat, if um, within one month they can um, eat two weeks of vegetarian throughout the month, you know, just to slowly uh, divide the meals so so that we we can see our interrelationship with the whole universe you know in in some ways uh, food is quite political i i remember um when i was at the guardian one of the things i wanted to do was to bring in a one day a week vegetarian only meal in the in the canteen and i thought you know the guardian is obviously a very liberal newspaper um, and I thought, you know, this would be welcomed. But actually, there was so much anger and aggression that one day a week we were going to go vegetarian. And, and, and so eventually it did not go ahead. And I, and I was just really intrigued because food also is very cultural. It's, uh, it's very, his, it's, it's based on, our, you know, our family history, you know, and, and people feel that they have a right it's their individual right to eat whatever they want. But, but in some ways, I felt at the time that was very selfish, that actually we need to broaden our horizon. And, and one thing, as you were talking, brother, that came to my mind is that I think people have a, a sort of a reverence for the taste of food, but I don't think they have a reverence for the food itself. And, and I'm aware of that myself. So I, uh, last time I went shopping, I had my trolley and I went to the sort of fruit and veg section. And I, I just grabbed, you know, I grabbed, I, I didn't do it in a hurry, but I, I just took, you know, you, you open a bag, I grab a handful of beans, I throw it in a bag and then literally I just toss it into the shopping cart. And then I, you know, and, and I don't actually have any relationship to it. There's no sort of sense of, wow, you know, if I were to really stop. Mm. And I think this is one of you know, that Ty's deepest teachings that touched me was, I always remember he, he, I was in one of his talks and he said, you know, if you take a single piece of carrot and before you put it in your mouth, just look deeply at that piece of carrot and you can see that the entire universe is in that piece of carrot. And he was saying, well, you know, for the carrot to grow, it needs the air, it needs the water, it needs the soil and it needs the sun 
Um, and for the sun to exist, the whole universe has to exist. And then from a human perspective, it needs the farmer and the person picking the crop and then de uh, delivering it to the shop and then the shopkeeper to sell it to you. So actually, in just one carrot, if you really stop and look, you would actually develop a reverence for that carrot because you see that actually all of life was needed for that carrot to exist. But even though I know that, and, and even though it touched me very deeply, I'm in the supermarket and it's just filled with food and I just bag mm. it up and, mm. and take it out. Yeah, Joe, I think what you, what you talked about, I think that's a lot of us. <laughs> it's not just you. Um, and one of our practice that we have to bring up as we eat is gratitude. And what I've experienced is whenever we have gratitude for the meal, the food becomes 10 times more delicious. And I, it's very interesting how, you know, we, we, we have, um, most of us, if we're lucky, we have three meals a day and some of us two meals a day or even just one meal a day. But we, we think that food is just like fuel for our engine. So that's why we don't have this relationship and we don't see our connection to food. And that's why we don't, we don't feel grateful for the food. But if you put yourself in the position of someone who is hungry, a hungry child who don't have enough to eat, who is very skinny, and just to have a cup of milk, it means the world to them. And Plum Village has um, the Hungry Children program that uh, we would uh, always have a fund to to give to programs that 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 support hungry children um, in Vietnam, and then we we supported um, another trust in India and some other places in the world. And when I was an aspirant, I was asked that every every month we get pocket money, 40 euros. And if we would like to put anything into that fund. And every time that pocket came and I would put five or 10, depending on my generosity of that moment. But I felt so grateful that I know that I can feed someone else outside of my circle. And then that helped nourish my gratitude to food. And that really shifted my whole consciousness to to realizing that even having a bowl of rice and soy sauce was already a blessing. So I, one of my favorite, I didn't have a sweet tooth like you, Joe, my mother does, but I love savory foods. So I love chips, crackers, and, and I love soda. So I, that, I think I grew up on that, those kind of things, <laughs> always in the fridge. And coming to Plum Village, um, we are so far away from the supermarket, which is a good thing, but, slowly um, there's more supermarket coming closer to Plum Village, which is a little bit dangerous um, just, for the, just for the practice of moderation. Um, but I, I was so grateful for this um, training because I was really able to, to break free from this habit of eating junk food. So, you know, like whenever I went home from school as a, as a, a child, You, I think the first thing I did coming home from school was turn on the TV and then start munching on chips or, or anything available. And that slowly just became a habit. Like, just like you said, every time you go home, the first thing you go to is put your backpack, um, turn on the television, and then open the cupboard. 
So when I came to Plum Village, um, that wasn't available. And the conditions of the environment is also very supportive to changing of your habit. So I would also want to mention that if we can recognize what are the habits of, of our consumption of food, sometimes we just need to switch, change the, the, um, the situation that we're in. Maybe put the bag of chip or the cookie a little bit further down the cupboard, put a lock on it or something, <laughs> or, or even don't have it for a few days of the week. And, and, and you see it will change. But um, we, 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 have, we have needs and those needs become, we, we think they're essential for us. But if we reflect and we review the way we are consuming, I think we are happy with having less. And brother, just just one other thing around reverence for our food. When I was working in New York um, the last few years, you know, so many people um, at the Huff Post where I was working would basically grab their food and sit in front of the computer and work while they were eating and and eating very fast. And I know in Plum Village, um, you have two things. One is about chewing your food many times and, you know, how that brings out the sweetness of food. So um, I'm, I'm not very good at that, but you maybe you could tell us a bit more about that. Um, and the other thing is that uh, when we sit down for lunch, there's normally 15, 20 minutes of silence. Yes. What's all that about? Yes. So let's talk about um, the eating and the chewing because that was such a training for me. So we another habit that we have is that let's just get it through. Let's just finish the meal and check it off and then get on with life. I think a lot of the times we relate to food in that way. I, I also do that from time to time um, here in Plum Village. And now that we speak about it, I need to begin a new refresh my practice with this. <laughs> um, yeah, so so having the time to be present for the food is our practice. If we don't establish ourselves in the present moment and then look at the food and recognize the food and see for what it is. And when we look at the food deeply, we can see beyond the food. We can see the sun, the whole universe have come together, all the farmers. You like. There's just so much conditions that have come together for the food to be there. And Tai has this, this calligraphy that I really love whenever I enter into the dining hall um, back then. I don't see it around anymore. I don't know where it is. But the bread in your hand is the body of the, the cosmos. cosmos. The bread in your hand is the body of the cosmos. That's so beautiful. So it's saying like in this piece of bread, the whole cosmos have come together for it to manifest. So if I have that insight, I will be so grateful for this piece of bread. And one of the practice of mindfulness, it is to help us become more aware and we have to slow down our, our habits. Uh, most of us, we are walking, running. It, it seems like we're running after something at every moment. Like we're chasing after the future, even when we're eating. So when we come to Plum Village, we kind of ask everyone to go from gear five to down to like gear two, if possible. And if some needs to go down to gear one, just in order to 
really shift our habit, our habitual actions. You know, so chewing is is something we do when we eat, and when you are present with the food, you know that by chewing the food, you are help nourishing your body, and instead of like just putting food into our mouth and eating like a machine. Do we actually have time to even taste the food? So this practice is to help us recognize the food, taste the food, enjoy it, and then let the food become us. And not Thai usually tell us, "I want you to eat the food. Don't eat your thinking. Wow. Mm. Don't eat your thought. Don't eat your project. Eat your food." Isn't that crazy? I mean, uh, we are eating our food, but most of the time we are eating the past, the future, our worries, our anxiety, our excitements, our thinking. So, do we actually have we tasted that piece of carrot? Right. So, this practice is 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 very fundamental. It's very basic, but at the same time. It is one of the most deepest practice because that is allowing yourself to be mindfulness. Mindfulness is not an app. Mindfulness is not um, just breathing. Mindfulness is every action. So when we when we chew our food, one time Tai told me, "Did did you know that when you're chewing your food, isn't it amazing that you don't bite your tongue?" And I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute!" And I started to. Realize how skillful your tongue is pushing the food to the right or the left side in order to consume the food into your body. So there are so many things happening at that moment that you're eating. So that becomes a whole practice in itself. And the practice of chewing for thirty times—it seems crazy. When I first heard about about it, I was like, "Wow, chew for thirty times! This is going to take an hour." <laughs> of just eating uh, this bowl of rice and and food, but actually it's not as bad as it seemed. And and another practice that we do that I was trained is that when you take a spoonful, you learn to put the spoon down mm. and chew the food. Wow, another new technique because we have this tendency to. Take one spoonful, put it in our mouth, and then already, as we're chewing, we're preparing for the next thing, the next spoonful. Isn't that just our mind going into the future again? So this is another technique that you all can put into practice. Like if you um, take a spoonful, put the fork or spoon down, and just enjoy chewing that food. And then the silence. The silence allows us to be more available. Conversation is very beautiful because conversation helps connection. Um, so, in our practice, especially for lunch and dinner, um, in the upper Hamlet, the morning we keep it completely silent, so no bells. We just begin in silent and end in silent. Even if you're finished, you respect the noble silence in the dining hall. And after you wash up, you can you can start your conversation, but outside because you know others are practicing. But for lunch, it's like. Lunch is like one of the main meal in the monastery because it's it's the time of when the Buddha and his community ate. So that's like the main course of the day, and we all gather and we would wait for three fourths of the community to be av- to be seated, or sometimes the whole community, and we would start all together with 
uh, two sound of the bell, a contemplation, and then another sound of the bell. And then we would allow the community 20 minutes of silence just to eat. And that silence is very interesting. If you've been a long-time practitioner, I think you will really enjoy it. Uh, for some, it's almost scary to eat in silence and, and just to be aware of the food or aware of yourself. So this the space that we offer, it's a real time of practice to be to have a connection with the food and also to have that space and time to see what manifests in the mind while you're eating. That that's my own practice. And Tai says that we have a nonstop radio station. And can you help quiet that radio station in your mind by directing it to the attention of the food? So before I put broccoli into my mouth, I would give it a split second and I would even say, this is broccoli as, as my training. So, brother, we, it looks like we could talk about food all day. I know. We got to go on. We got to. We got to move on. We got to move on. So, um, the second one is sense impressions. Mm. So, um, do you want to give us a sort of brief intro? Brief intro, sense impression. We we have many many windows in our body. Our eyes are windows. Our ears are windows. Our nose are is smelling is another window. And then all of that has an influence on our mind. And it has an influence on our spirit and also our view of life. So this, this sense impression, we are always consuming. Even when you are listening to this podcast, you are consuming. But are we consuming mindfully? So it's not about not consuming. It's about how are we consuming? What are the direction we are giving ourselves. So when we are in a very busy city, uh, let's say New York, Joe, because you lived in New York. I visited New York a few times and there's so much going on from what you see, the sound and even the smell. And that all has a relationship and is communicating something to you, right? And I, I remember being in New York like, I always heard the siren every day. And my practice whenever I heard the siren was to contemplate compassion because something has gone wrong. That's why the siren is on. So I generate compassion. But if you live in, in, in an environment um, like that 24 seven, and I know many do, that will have an impact on our life, on our way of, of thinking and our way of um, going on, carrying on with our daily life. So how do we have practices to balance all of these noise, all of these images, etc.? So, but more practically, I think what a lot of times when I we talk about sense impression, first of all, we talk about what we consume with our eyes. Movies, televisions, um, shows, um, just just social media, all of those are food for our 
of our consciousness and our spirit also, and it will have an influence on our view of life. So we have to have time to become aware of what are our mental formations. And when I say mental formation, it, it, it means our feelings, our our emotions, like that, our anger, like what what comes up in our daily life more and more. And this is mindfulness. We have to be aware of what we're feeling today and what we are feeling, how is it being nourished? That's very important. And a lot of the times we can connect it to what we consume by our senses, especially by our, our eyes and what we read and then what we hear, what we listen to. I I love music, Joe. You know that. Yeah. I, I do a lot of singing and sometimes from time to time, a little bit of hip hop, a little bit of rap. Um, and I I have a tendency that I love sad music also. <laughs> and and um, there's something about it that that right, it brings you into into a place that makes you feel vulnerable and makes you feel I don't know, just empty in a way. And this is not emptiness of Buddhism. This is more empty of feelings and and whatnot. Um, and so part of the monk's trainings in our precept is to be mindful and selective of what we listen to. So that was a real training for me as a young monk. I had to stop consuming these, um, these uh, my favorite music that in the past and to change, change um, my, what I hear because all of that becomes a source of energy for me. Yeah. And, and also, you know, we are, we lose our sovereignty. Right. Uh, and, and, or, you know, agency or whatever we want to call it. Because for me, it's like, if we're constantly consuming things, then actually, you know, that's what we become. And, uh, you know, um, but the Buddha said, you know, with our thoughts, we create the world, but also our thoughts are generated from our experiences and, and, and what we see in the world. And if we're constantly, and, and this is what we're seeing with polarization, isn't it, in the, in the US, that if, if you're constantly listening to conspiracy theories and that you're, you're, you mix with friends who also believe conspiracy theories, you're going to actually build a universe around absolutely believing those conspiracy theories and then acting on them. And then anyone who doesn't believe them or people who are the victims of the conspiracy theories, you know, it, it just becomes, you know, we, we aren't, unless we're aware, we, we lose ourselves. And, and I noticed that even in the last week, I don't know why I've been noticing things in the last week, um, but I have. And uh, I've noticed that whenever I am uh, making food, what I tend to do is I, I, I'll stick something on the pan and then I might, my phone will be there and I'll pick up and I might look at Instagram or I might look at something. And what I feel is how quickly I get lost in that. And then I'll smell a, a smell of burning and I think, oh my God, you know, and I, I did that uh, a week ago. I sort of burned a pan because I was heating it ready for something and I got caught by something uh, a bit of news or whatever and, and and then you just start following it down down a rabbit hole and i completely lost my sense of time i completely lost my sense of place and i completely lost my mindfulness of what i was doing and i and i think that um you know as you say 
within cities, you know, like I, I, I always felt um, with cities and, and particularly with London that there's almost a psychic energy that, that cities actually have an energy and that if you have a sensitivity, often you'll get drowned in that energy. You know, I used to remember, I used to sort of walk into the underground, into the subway station in London and, and go down the escalator. And I would just start to feel that energy of being rushed of speed and then you know the the culture uh, in journalism is about speed and and suddenly you realize that your whole life is is speeding up so so brother what's the best way of of almost you know just turning that because because it's very easy to say well just switch it off and and we know that there are lots of practical things we can do like an hour before bed don't look at the news or don't look at any uh, media because then you take it into your sleep and and when you wake up don't immediately switch on the phone but there is in a sort of an addiction we are living in an addictive society around this and i'm just wondering how to be mindful you know if, we, if people are stuck in this place which i sometimes am but i i tend to develop an awareness and try and uh, moderate it but how do we start to work with this i think first we what we can do is uh reflect on and be honest with ourselves. what we are addicted to. Is it um, television? Is it music? Is it information? And then can we start to um, switch our channels of what we're consuming to something more wholesome, such as hopefully this podcast is, is a kind of good nutriment, but we also have many other things that we can consume that can be um, nourishing for ourselves, and then finding finding that balance. And we know that nature is a very good um, uh, television, <laughs> but it's not it's not about just watching it, but it's being in it. And I I see that um, we we get into this these addiction is because we feel there's nothing else to do, and so our teacher tells us that. We have to learn to recognize the energies that are in us, even if it's restlessness or even if it's dullness, it's like nothing to do. We can shift our energy by by doing, by being active in it. So the practice is to, to really look and, and recognize and be honest what is our habits. What is it that makes us go away from the present moment. That's what it is because all of this going through our telephone, going through the internet is to be away from the here and now, to be away from us. And if we recognize that and we see that by coming back to ourselves, oh, I do feel empty. And how can I nourish myself now? And there are so many different ways and, and, Consuming the media is only one way. There is walks in nature. There is connecting to a friend, um, doing writing, reading, doing a hobby that can nourish our spirit. Our teacher does calligraphy on his free time because that nourishes his joy, bringing his practice into writing. Uh, some of us love gardening. Um, we would spend time, hours, to, to just take care of 
um, the bonsai, take care of the orchids. So it's about shifting our attention. I think this is the art. This is a whole art, but it's very doable. And then if we can't do it alone, find friends to do it with in order to change our our habits. And we have to take step by step. Um, sometimes you feel very caught up in something and you feel it's so hard to be out of it. What you need is support from others. And if we are lucky enough to have those friends that can be a support for us, we can program once a week. Can we go for a walk together, for example? Just to just to have different, um, different like it's like having different food within our our um, meal plan. So instead of instead of just this uh, being being caught in one system and thinking that is everything, actually the world is. So vast, and there's so much things to do, and and there are simple things that can actually bring a lot of joy. I love cleaning, so I would come I, around to my house anytime. <laughs> your house is actually very clean, Joe. <laughs> uh, but you know, like just the joy of sweeping, the joy of um, doing your laundry. All of these simple things can be a practice. Um, washing. Washing up after a meal, etc. So they're they're just it's all about our teacher says that it's changing the peg. If you know you're doing something that makes you suffer or that makes you um, dull, make you lose yourself, you have to have the courage to change. And you can't just say I'm not going to do anything because our habit is going to <gasps> it's going to be drawn to that that addiction again. And that's why we have to change the peg. We have to bring in new elements. Yeah, and that, and that, brother, that does take, you know, a commitment and courage. You know, you have to take ownership. Again, coming back to agency, I, I remember I was doing some self-development work with an experiential group, and I remember there was one workshop, and someone came in, it was a three-day workshop, and, and he was talking about his addiction to gambling. And he was quite a focus of the uh, three-day workshop, and, and the, the facilitator worked very deeply with him around, you know, the causes of his addiction and, you know, his childhood traumas and, and you know, you know that he was given a lot of time and space and, and, and a lot of love from the group to change. And then I remember on the last morning, just before we, we, um, we closed, he put up his hand and the facilitator turned to him and said, yes. And, and the guy said, um, you know, we're coming to the end and I'm, I'm, I'm really worried that I'm going to go back to, you know, gambling again, and and um, you know, what's your advice to me? And and the facilitator was quite frustrated at that point. Just turned to him and just said, "Just stop, and just stop it." And and there's a there's there's also an aspect that we use our addictions to avoid suffering, and I think that's that's one of the aspects, brother. I wanted you you started to touch on, but I think maybe we could go a bit deeper on, which is that. Why do we consume things all the time? What, because why are we rushing? Because there's the fear of what happens if we stop. And, and, and it's, like a, it's, like a, uh, it's like a downward spiral that we are fearful of our traumas or our suffering in our life coming up to the surface. So when it starts to bubble up, we, we look for an escape. And by looking for an escape, we block our suffering. So our suffering goes deeper underground and therefore builds its power. And, and so th this whole sort of cycle is actually an avoidance of our suffering. 
And, and because we're avoiding it in our mind, it must be so big. If we're avoiding it, it must be because we can't deal with it. And so, so by constantly avoiding it, we're constantly bi- making it bigger in our mind until eventually, you know, we, we just block out completely. Whereas actually, if we were to face it in that moment when it comes up, rather than look for an excuse, we'll realize actually it's not so big. We can handle it. We can look after it. We can be there for our suffering. It doesn't have to overwhelm us. So I, I think there's something around recognizing that actually the, the way to stop the addiction is to recognize about what it is we're trying to cover up. Exactly, exactly. And and I think um, in today's in today's world, even for myself in the monastery, like we have we have created um, like shared emails, uh, um, a kind of sangha eye on even like our social media pages of the community, and just to um, support each other as we interact in this whole new <laughs> this whole new um, world. Because all of it is also can be an addiction, right? And there's many. Um, documentaries and research that shows how social media can also um, give a sense of worth, self-worth in our dopamine. Dopamine, yeah. exactly. So, like we we are entering into um, a world where it's so important of just human relationship. I feel that's why our teacher was so strong on building communities. Because a lot of our addiction is because we are alone, we're disconnected, and we don't feel love. We don't feel, um, and we don't know how to love also. And therefore, we go on this path of of um, self-pleasure or uh, self-harm. And that pleasure and harm can also be addiction. And, and what we recognize is that communities can be a, a great support to overcome these um, these feeling of loneliness and these feelings of habits that are so hard to change. And sometimes we can't do it alone. We need the support of others. And I think for myself, I can't I can't practice mindfulness by myself in today's world. I feel it's just so much. There's just so much. Um, um, sense impressions that are pulling me in so many directions. And I have to be reminded that being still and doing nothing is an art and is so enjoyable. And that's why we have a very holy day in Plum Village that will never change in this tradition. And it's called Lazy Day. And a lot of times when we have this free lazy day, you know, we we tend to pack it up with more things to do than on a normal schedule. And sometimes I have to tell myself, do not plan anything. Just let the day manifest. Just let the day be and just to go with the flow of the day. And you can see how beautiful 24 hours can be. So even planning can become... A, a source of uh, food for ourselves, but it can direct ourselves to become more anxious or even more goal-oriented. That means we become more pushy with ourselves and we are not free. We are not liberated in the present moment. And, and brother, that brings us to the third one, which is volition. And most, I mean, I before I came to Plum Village, I never heard of that word, but I mean, volition is essentially one's aim or one's dream or one's wish for how we want, we want our lives to be. 
So um, talk to us a bit about volition and why is this relevant? So here, volition is like an energy that gives, is a nutriment for us. So when we have a path, when we have a direction in life, that gives us an energy. Um, I can speak for myself because when I came to Plum Village and I know that in my heart, it was telling me I need to become a monk. And that became my volition. That became that became an, a very deep aspiration inside of me. And it, it suddenly, it gave me so much energy. And I was willing to go through <laughs> any kind of training in order to fulfill this aspiration. So here we can see that volition is a source of energy. And we know nutrients are energy also. So food gives us energy. What we hear, what we listen, what we read also gives us energy. But here is looking at our deepest desire, our deepest aspiration. If we have an aspiration that gives, that brings peace and love to the world, that's a very noble and beautiful aspiration that this energy will be limitless, right? But it also needs nourishment. It needs the right condition. And But if someone who has also a volition to destroy, to punish, that is also a very dangerous energy and a very dangerous nutriment. And that can influence not just oneself, but a whole community, a whole nation, a whole society. So volition, the will, is, is something very strong because that is connected to our mind consciousness. And we know in, in the teachings of the Buddha, the mind can also create the world. So if we know how to take care of our mind, we know what nourishes our mind, what feeds our compassion, our understanding, our love, our inclusiveness, then our volition will, will be with those flavors. But if we're always consuming violence, consuming um, sources that that divide us, then that will become our volition. We would want to be more separated. We would want to feed our ego, feed our um, sense of power. So this this here is a very deep meditation in coming back and asking ourselves, what is our direction? What is our deepest aspiration? And are we walking that path? And, and also, brother, it's um, for me, and I think what Thai's teachings also tell us is not to believe that our aspiration is going to lead us to uh, is our happiness. So, so, you know, Thai has a famous phrase, you know, there's no... Uh, way to happiness. Happiness is the way. And and I think he once gave the example in a talk um, I, I was at many years ago. He said, you know, you can have an aspiration to, you want a PhD. Right. And so you work five years for that PhD because at some level you think, if only I have that PhD, that's going to make me happy. But actually, once you've got your PhD, what are you doing the next day? And I think I think a lot of people mistake um, and and it, it talks something about sort of uh, the nature of impermanence, that if we have this fixed dream that this is our, you know, because, yeah, we know that, and it's very much in the world of business that, you know, people want purpose and people want meaning. Of course they do, because that, that gives us a sense of, 
of belonging in a sense that our lives have value. But if we believe our happiness is dependent on that, then actually, you know, what we're developing is the very seeds of our unhappiness. And um, there's one example, brother, I always remember that. So when I was growing up, there was a TV series in England called Colditz. And it was basically, it was this German castle where prisoners of war from, from, uh, from uh, the British Army and, um, and Air Force were, were kept. And, and, the, and the whole series was about people who were always trying to escape. So they were building planes and they were digging tunnels and, you know, all, and, and every week there was a sort of different type of escape. And there was one episode, and I, I don't know, it just struck me so deeply at the time. And it was this, um, this uh, uh, UK member of the armed forces who, who basically came up with this idea to pretend he had gone mad. And that they would release him if he could convince them that he had basically lost the plot. And so every day he practised losing, you know, pretending he was uh, losing his mind. And then after several months, he convinced them. And so the Germans let him go and he was, he was allowed to go back to the UK. And there, I remember all the, all the prisoners of war were cheering, yeah, he made it, he got away with it. And then a couple of months later, they received a letter from this man's wife saying, you know, uh, Jim is settled in the home and, you know, and, um, and uh, you know, yes, he he he's 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 mad, but at least he's home. And it was such a powerful thing because it's like because he pretended to be that so well, and every day he became that. He actually became mad. So the very thing he thought would be his escape was his madness. And and it speaks of, in a sense, the danger of volition, in the mm. sense that you can so be fixated with something that you just become that and lose any any broader sense of self yeah and wow thank you joe for that story because that, that that's that's very real I've, I've also seen um very close friends who who go down because of their volition and and they get tunnel vision and without seeing um um all the effect even we have to be mindful of our volition because it can also be a source of suffering for others and we have to also meditate and have time to check because our volition can always change because our understanding can grow. So our aspiration can, can grow. And I think that's the beauty when I, when I um, look at these teachings. It's like, it's not absolute. It's like to be good. It's not the only aspiration because what does it mean to be good? Because there's so many layers to it. It's like to love. There's so many layers to love, right? And there's so many layers to be mindful. There's so many layers to be awakened. And we have to also be honest where we're at and not to be um, caught in the destination, like you said, because happiness is not at the final destination, but it's the path already. To have a path is already a beautiful, a beautiful passage. Like it's a very beautiful sense of like, I have a path, I'm walking. I'm, I'm on it. And I know if I continue to walk it, I will be able to enjoy each moment. And if I have the conditions to arrive at the destination, it would be wonderful. But it, it's not the end because the path continues. Mm. I, I have this image, brother, of a, of a racehorse going around the track. And, you know, they put blinkers on, on its eyes so it can only look forward. Um, and, and it does that 
they they put the blinkers on so it's not distracted by life. And in a sense, that's the that's always the risk, isn't it? We think uh, we our job is to race around the track as fast as possible, and and then we miss everything that's going on in life and miss any opportunity to to um, to transform. And brother, one, one last thing on that is you talked you just mentioned it in passing, but you said our volition can create suffering for other people, and I thought that was really really profound because often we think of our volition, our uh, ambition, our aim is what will make us happy, what we think will fulfill us, uh, rather than thinking actually, how does it support the community I'm in? How does it support the family I belong in? How does it support the world? So, so, so there's that thing about volition can also be very selfish. Exactly. And I was just going to talk about that too, which was to mention that when we speak about volition, it's not only individual, we can also bring it to collective volition. As a couple, you know, you, I hope you have time to speak with your partner about your shared volition, right? Because that is, that has an impact on both of us. And then if we live in a community, we have to have moments to share about collective volition, individual volition, and also collective volition. And and businesses, corporations, I think it's so important to 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 see to see um the one in the all and the all in the one. And that is also a very deep teaching of Buddhism. But I think we've got to go to the next one. Yeah. So this is this is the one I find most difficult to grab hold of. So consciousness. So um, it'd be really helpful, brother, because I mean, there, there are two types of consciousness. I suppose there, there's our, again, as you were just saying, there's our individual consciousness, which I take to be the sort of body of all our own thoughts and 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 our sort of ancestors' thoughts that, that we've been passed down. And then there's a collective consciousness, which is, in a sense, all the thoughts of society. So it's a bit like... Um, I, I think of the film The Ghostbusters when there's underneath the city there's this river of feelings. It's everywhere. I mean, they tend to be the negative feelings, but but it, in a sense, it's a bit like that river. It's like all of our thoughts, individual thoughts, and all of everyone else's thoughts, in a sense, create this river of consciousness. But is that is that a reasonable definition, or, or can you take it forward from that? Yes, so I think you've gone to the like the deeper meaning of it. Um, but when when the Buddha shared about this, um, he and, and our teacher shares about it. First of all, let's let's talk about individual consciousness. So we have mind consciousness and store consciousness. So mind consciousness is what our thinking, what manifests in the day, our feelings, our emotions, things that maybe we can grasp by. Having awareness of it, and then we have store consciousness, which holds all of our experience, all of the past, and all of these formations—anger, jealousy, greed, um, hatred—but also very beautiful qualities: love, compassion, understanding, um, equanimity, joy, peace. And then there are some neutral um, con- uh, mental formation also. So when we speak about consciousness, we know that our consciousness is also a food. So um, Tai gave us an example, which is like the cow has like um, uh, in his stomach, like I think, uh, please forgive me, uh, I don't know the exact detail, but Tai mentioned it like um, the cow can eat 
the grass and he can keep it and he can bring it out and, and it chew it again. It regurgitates it and then it chews it again. Exactly. Yeah. So Tai used this as an example. Sometimes we have an experience from the past that was very um, painful and very, um, is a big source of suffering. And instead of being free from it by working with it, looking at it, working with it, transforming it, healing it, we always revisit it and it comes back and it haunts us again and again and again. Um, Tai gave an example, like if, um, if you were beaten, it was like a slap in the face. And now that you remember it, that's another slap. So your consciousness can become a kind of nutriment of what you are giving yourself. So here it's talking about the suffering more when we when we talk about this. So we we know that our practice is not to run away from the past and not to forget the past, but is to take care and to heal the past. And so our consciousness um, is also the store of all of our experience. It's a continue a continuous lineage of also our ancestors' experience, and we can transform it for them. So when we take care of our consciousness, when we become aware of how we are, what we are thinking, and it's connected to the first three, I would say, by what we consume by food, what we consume by our senses, and what, how do we motivate ourselves in our, in our life by direction, our volition, it will have an impact on our consciousness. And I... I I sometimes procrastinate a lot and I can just sit there in la la land <laughs> in my head for hours and just like fantasize or so. That is also a food. That's a kind of um, consumption. And so we also have to be mindful of how we are thinking and how we are creating thoughts, what is nourishing our thoughts. So that is consciousness. But then there's also collective consciousness, which our teacher talks a lot about also. By being in an environment that is supportive, that feeds our good intention, that feeds our well-being, that feeds our body and mind. But if we happen to be in an environment which is very destructive, very violent, and if we have the capacity to, to break free from it, to, to make sure we don't become that violence, Right, so here is looking at the environment, the collective consciousness could also become us. It, I, I, I want to say also very clearly that in our path as Buddhism, we also have bodhisattvas who makes the aspiration to go into the challenging places in order to help transform the collective consciousness. But if we don't have that capacity and we can become a victim to that collective consciousness of of destruction, of hatred. If we are skillful and we have a way to break free from it in order to nourish and to care for ourselves, to have agency for our well-being, that's very important to, to look at our collective consciousness, our collective environment. Yeah, and also, brother, as you, as you speak, there are a couple of sto short stories that come to mind. One is I remember reading an article many years ago about um, the parents of, a, of, and their child had been murdered. And the article was about the fact that 
the parents had forgiven the murderer. And and I always remember, you know, how how could you forgive someone who's killed your only child? And um and as I read the article, you know, that was the question, you know, how how can you forgive? And and I always remember them saying, if we don't forgive, we are the ones who are going to spend our life suffering. We're going to we're going to be paying the penalty and we'll we'll be passing that on in in everything in our lives. But if we are able to forgive the murderer, actually we're also finding forgiveness in ourselves. And I again that was a moment that really struck me deeply. The fact that we do again, we, we keep on coming back to this sense of you can either be a victim or you can have sovereignty. You know, that that we're constantly got that choice of are we going to fall victim to this or are we actually going to have agency? And and actually in every thought we have, in every action we take, you know, we do have choices. And and a lot of the time I think people feel, well, you know, that's just the way it is, or that's how I am, that's how I was born, that's that's who the person I am. But actually all the time we have some agency if we choose it. And and the other story that came to my mind, um, Sister Chanduk, who, uh, for those who don't know, is is the longest serving Western, she was the first Western nun to be ordained by uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And um, I interviewed her, got a couple of years ago. And I was saying, um, you know, at that point she was about just over 70 years old, I think. And I, and I said, Sister Chanduk, you know, what what's your volition? What's your ambition? What do you want to do with the rest of your life you're you know you're getting on a bit and you know you you know you've got less years to live than you uh, than you have lived so you know what what do you want to do with your remaining time and it really struck me at the time she said i want to be the very very best person that i can be in order to in this because this will influence the uh, collective unconscious the collective conscious rather and i was thinking about it i thought but you know, most people don't even know you exist. Most people don't know, will never come across. You're, 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 you are basically doing all this focus on your mindfulness, on, on, on your sort of purifying your mind and everything. And, and what I got is, yes, that will, on an energetic level, that, that feeds into the collective consciousness because actually the collective consciousness is just everyone's thoughts. And so if someone is really purifying their mind, that is going to have a positive impact on the collective consciousness. And, and it, it just made me realize that actually all our actions, whatever we do or choose to think or choose to act on, feeds into what the future will look like. So, brother, I think we should probably stop there. What do you think? I think so. I think we, we, we were able to go through all four categories and share our experience as well, share our understanding on the nutrients. And um, brother Fapu, 
as is now customary, we have our own positive um, habits here. And we are, tend to finish off with a short meditation by yours sincerely. Would you like to uh, take us away? Of course. Or actually not take us away, bring us home. Let us go inwards. <laughs> so dear friends, wherever you may be, if you are going for a walk, going for a jog, or sitting on the bus, sitting on the plane, sitting on the train, or just enjoying your home. If you can allow yourself to be still, whether standing or sitting, and allow me to bring you to the present moment. Let us become aware of our breath as we breathe in. Recognize this is our in-breath. As we breathe out, recognize this is our out-breath. In-breath, out-breath. Breathing in, this is in-breath. Breathing out, this is out-breath. As I breathe in, I become aware of my body. Breathing out, I relax my body. In, aware of body. Out, I relax my body. If there's any tension in our shoulders, in our face, in our back, our legs, Allow the tension to be released with each in-breath and out-breath. In, aware of the body. Out, I release the tension in my body. Breathing in, I connect to the peace inside of me, the stillness. Breathing out, I enjoy this quiet stillness and peace. In, recognizing peace. Out. I enjoy this peace. Breathing in, connecting myself to the sounds around me, not being carried away, but just recognizing out, I am established in the present moment, in, aware of life around me, out, I am present for life inside of me and all around me.
breathing in. I am in touch with compassion in my heart. Breathing out, I offer my love and compassion to the world, the ones that I love, the ones that are around me, and also to the ones that I may have difficulty with. Just connecting and letting my compassion manifest my understanding. In, there is love in my heart. Out, I am nourishing my understanding. Breathing in, I am in touch with the present moment. How simple. How wonderful it is to be alive. Breathing out, I give gratitude and thanks to this air, to the condition of life that allows me to be. In life, out, gratitude. Thank you, friends, for practicing, for breathing mindfully. And we will see you next time in our podcast, The Way Out Is In. Thank you for those of you who have joined us right to the end of this podcast. We always appreciate when you can follow us all the way through. If you would like to hear further episodes of The Way Out Is In, you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on other platforms that carry podcasts, and also on our very own Plum Village app. This podcast was brought to you by the generous donors of the Thich Nhat Hanh Foundation. If you would like to support future episodes of the podcast and the work of the international Plum Village community, please visit www.tnhf.org/donate. The way out is in.